Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 6. And we're returning today to this very practical section of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is speaking about a condition that's common in every generation. It's common to every race of people. And unfortunately, it's as common to believers as it is to unbelievers. The issue that we're dealing with is anxiety. It's, it's about worry over our lives. It's the preoccupation that we have with material goods to the point that all of that becomes all-consuming for us. It becomes a constant pursuit of life. Worry and anxiety can be very debilitating psychological problems. Uh, psychologists and psychologists have said that if they could get rid of worry, much of their patients' problems could be solved without any further treatment. Charles Mayo of the Mayo Clinic said, it affects circulation, the heart rate, the glands, the nervous system. And he added, I've never known a man to die of overwork, but many die of worry. You go to a psychiatrist and you ask him, what are you going to do about worry? Uh, what, what am I, how am I going to take care of all the worries? I'm so depressed about what I'm going through. Psychologists, psychiatrists will say, well, what we need to do is put you on Prozac. We'll medicate your worry. We'll put you into a stupor so that you really don't think about it anymore. Well, we're thankful that the Bible has a much better solution for worry than that. Uh, just about anybody can take Prozac. But the Bible has a cure that's really for a more select group. Actually, not just everybody gets this. It's for people who know Christ and they understand God. And they know the person to whom they can take all of their anxieties to. And they just leave it there. They just give it to God and they leave it there. First uh, Peter chapter 5 verse 7, Peter says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this section that we're dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount is really just an expansion of those two verses. This is Jesus dealing with the very same thing. I'll give you rest. I'll take all of your cares. And so what we have here is a reasoned argument from our Lord about why we should not worry and why even it's sinful for us to worry. So I'd like for you to look in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse number 25. Stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 6, 25, down to the end of the chapter. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What we shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient 
unto the day is the evil thereof. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. And as we look into this portion of Scripture, I ask you, Lord, you'd open up our hearts to understand what the Holy Spirit would have us to know and that we would learn truly that we are not to worry. We're to trust you for everything. Help us to be a people that always looks to you and always seeks the kingdom of God. Blessing this message today, we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to concentrate on the last two verses of this text, Matthew 6. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. The message I want to bring you today is the third part of a message that we've called worry warts. We are a people that's full of anxiety. And as I've said, this is not a condition that's unique to our generation. Generations before us, all generations in fact, have experienced the very same thing. Uh, Sometimes that is greater than it is in other times. And I believe that as Americans today that we are probably living in the worst of those times. Particularly Americans, we, we're in the worst of this because we live in such a fast-paced society that it tends to feed our greed and the anxiety that we have over our material possessions. And so we have a standard of living that we think that we must, obtain, uh, we must maintain. And for Christian people, what we really need to do is to have our thinking very seriously realigned so that we understand the place where God wants us to live, the level on which God wants us to live, rather than choosing that for ourselves. Whenever you try to maintain your standard above God's standard, then it's always going to lead you into levels of higher anxiety. And I also want to point out today how serious a sin that materialism is and worry over such things. That is a terrible sin because it's actually lack of faith in God. It attacks the very veracity of God. Whenever you say that you're worried about things and you're not so sure what's going to happen to you, then it's the same as calling God a liar. You think that you have to do things for yourself and if you don't do them, then you'll be miserable and perhaps you'll even die. But God is not going to let you die. If you're his child and if he saved you, he's called you out for an eternal purpose. And you can be sure that God is going to accomplish his purpose. He didn't allow Christ to come into this world to to be a sacrifice for your sins and endure all the things that he went through just to let you go, to turn you loose and leave you to languish under the weight of your own self-sufficiency. So in this section, Jesus says, here's why you shouldn't worry. Have faith in God. Turn all of your anxieties over to him. Now before we look at the last two verses of the section, I want to just briefly review four ideas that we've talked about life thus far. And you remember that when Jesus says here, take no thought, that it's the same as saying, don't worry. Don't be anxious about things. Now first we notice the preparation of life. Take no thought, Jesus says. But that doesn't mean that we're to throw caution to the wind. It doesn't mean that we stop work and we sit down and we do nothing and we just let God take over things and we expect that the mailman's going to come by every week with a check. Jesus did say that the birds don't sow in the fields, they don't reap a harvest, they don't store up food in their barns, but God still takes care of them. 
But that doesn't mean that a bird doesn't have to go out and look for the worms that he eats and he doesn't need to gather the materials for his nest. God makes sure that those things are there for him, but the bird still has to go out there and gather all those things in order to sustain his life. And so you are to prepare. You are to be industrious about your life. There's nothing that we read here in the scriptures that precludes the duty of a wife, a parent, a husband, a worker to take care of his family. In fact, God says that a person who will not work should not eat. And he also says that a person who doesn't take care of his family is worse than an infidel, worse than a heathen. Then the second thought that we had about life was the composition of life. Verse number 25 says, Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? And Jesus is saying, Is your life, does it just consist of the food that you eat? Is your body a place that God has made to to hang your designer clothes on? I mean, isn't your life more than that? And what Jesus is saying here is that God has put the material goods in this world to supply you. He didn't put these things here for you to be enslaved to them. The material exists for you and not you for the material. And I think it's interesting that God told Adam way back in the very beginning of time, he said, Adam, you are to subdue the earth. All of the earth is to be put under subjection to you. And so God has put resources upon this earth to supply man. And we're always to be in a right relationship to those resources. Now today, lots of times that's been flipped upside down by the environmentalists and the ecologists because most of the time they want us to actually be enslaved to the ecology. And so what they try to do is to limit man's progress upon the earth. And truly, uh, using God's resources rightly, that is a godly principle. But the Bible never teaches that man is to be a slave to spotted owls and salamanders. That's not God's idea. Man is not going to destroy the earth. He doesn't have to because God's going to do it. And God will do it in his own good time. And until that time, what we are to do is to take the material and use it. It belongs to us, and we don't belong to the material. You can't put that the other way around. And so Jesus argues that if God takes care of birds and flowers and he takes care of the most insignificant parts of creation, then you can rest assured that God is going to take care of you. God, who created man as the highest order of his creation, created him in the image of God with thought and with reason and for the purpose of bringing glory to him, you can expect that God is going to help you to fulfill that purpose. The Westminster Catechism begins with this question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so God has created you to glorify him. He saved you for that purpose, and he sustained your life for that purpose. And so your life is more than material. And your life, or I should say the material things of your life, are simply a trivial pursuit for God. They're inconsequential to him. He can take care of all that, and he'll keep you in a state where you can glorify him. Thirdly, we looked at the exhortation about life. And this part is about relationship. In verse 26, Jesus said, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Relationship is introduced by the phrase, Your heavenly Father feedeth them. Your heavenly Father. And so he's not speaking here about the bird's heavenly Father. He's yours. 
You have a relationship with him because of your faith in Christ. And you have become children of God by faith. And so no more than your little children get up in the morning and they worry about where they're going to get breakfast today. They worry about whether house payments are going to be made. They worry about how you're going to take care of your car. They're not concerned about any of that. And God is telling us that as his children, we're not to let those things weigh down on our minds, expecting that God cannot take care of us. What we have here then is an expression of God's common grace versus his special redeeming grace. God's common grace is what he provides for the creatures of the earth, like the birds and the bees and the frogs and all of those things. But those do not have a personal relationship with God. You do, because you have been saved by him. He's become your father. And so Jesus says, are you not much better than they? You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He gave his life for you, and his special redeeming grace points directly at you. So you're better than them. Christ died specifically for you. He came into the world for you. He lived a perfect life for you. And he died an agonizing death for you. And so you're better than the creatures of this world because of relationship. You haven't done anything to be better, that's for sure. God just chose you particularly out of his own mercy, his love, and his grace. And he made you a special object of, to, to place his goodness upon And so if he's done so much to claim you, God is not going to turn loose of you. Now this is actually Jesus pleading with us. Here he is yearning for us. He exhorts you to consider who God is. What has God done? And so rather than thinking about yourself, we need to think about God's eternal purposes. And you realize then when you think about such things that whatever God has in his own hands is there with safekeeping. Fourthly, we looked at the expectation of life. And this is the part about faith. God wants to move you beyond saving faith. Now, of course, you have to have saving faith. You're never going to enter into relationship with God without saving faith. But God wants wants you to move beyond that initial point of salvation where you trusted him for salvation. And when he speaks about little faith here, he's not talking about your salvation faith. He's talking about his sustaining faith, the faith that God gives you to live your everyday life for him. And there are so many Christians that they got saved, they trusted God for that part, and then they just acted like God's not around anymore. God doesn't care for me anymore. But God wants you to move into a greater faith where you trust him in every avenue of your life. And so Jesus says, if you're the type of person that's constantly worrying about things, then you are a person of little faith. Doubt is opposed to faith. That's faith's opposite. And in Romans 14, Paul said, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So doubt is as far away from faith as you can get. And I think that means that it's one of the worst sins. Worry is sin. And your expectation in life should be that because Christ saved you, he will take care of you. You expect it. Because that's part of God's exceeding precious promises that impermeate the entire word of God. Now, in the beginning of the message, I said that when you're filled with doubts and worries, it's the same thing as calling God a liar. And I can't imagine that anyone would stand in the face of God and wag their finger in his face and say, God, you are a liar. If God is a liar, he can't be God. Truthfulness is an inherent attribute of God. And 
who has the audacity to doubt God's truthfulness? And you see why this is such a serious matter? It's really no wonder that Christians live in defeat and they struggle with just meager spiritual issues. You're not going to accomplish anything for God until you grow out of that baby Christianity. You have to be more than a person of little faith. If God says that he'll do something for you, then you expect him to do it. And in fact, in verses 30 and 31, or 31 and 32, Jesus said that Christians that worry over such things are worse than heathens. He says, Gentiles seek after these things. It's just another way of saying that pagans and heathens worry over such stuff. And so there is no born-again child of God who ought to act like the heathen as if God doesn't care for them. Now, that's the review. I mean, there was a lot that was said on those four points about life. And if you didn't get that from the earlier messages, get a copy of it and consider what was said very carefully. But we need to move on now to these last two thoughts about life and worry. And I say that these are the last two. Actually, I think I've got three here that are left. But you need to trust me on this. I I am inadequate to deal with all the material that we have here. I mean, there are thousands of sermons that have been preached on this text. And I promise you that if you'll take some time with this and you'll study this thing out, that you'll come out with some very good material here. And you may want to preach some sermons too. But number five that we want to talk about next is the submission of life. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Now if I could summarize what's said here in just a few words, I would say, who is your God? In whose kingdom do you live? Listen to what Paul said in Colossians 1. He said, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet or made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. If you are living in the kingdom of darkness, then I would say to you, worry all you want. You should be worried. Night and day, you ought to be worried if you're still living in the kingdom of darkness. And if I was there, I'd worry too. I'd be consumed with materialism. I'd be consumed about the things of the world. But I'm no longer in that kingdom. If you've been translated into a different kingdom, then what should occupy you? Should it be the things of the kingdom that you were in or the things of the kingdom that you are now in? And the scripture says that God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And so there is the very thing that occupies us. We, we look for righteousness. We, we pursue righteousness. Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2. Paul says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And that's what it actually means to seek the kingdom of God. Now, if you remember, Jesus started out this message with a beatitude, and he was speaking of righteousness, and he said in chapter 5, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, we're worried about being filled, aren't we? We're worried about being filled with pork roast and chicken wings and, and mashed potatoes and gravy. And we're worried about being filled up with status and with all the designer stuff. And all of those things are inconsequential to God. They're minor. 
When you start to compare those things to God's plans and purposes, do they rate a mention? I mean, could you, could you put those in the same category of things that you ought to think about when you think about God's eternal purpose? God's work is eternal work. You have to grasp that comparison. God is dealing with the eternal soul. Here's the God who rules the vast reaches of the universe. And so what are these trivial things of life compared to everything that God is dealing with? And so instead of submitting ourselves to materialism and being controlled by all the circumstances that are around, can't you see yourself in God's kingdom? And can't you see yourself about God's business? Our business is God's business. And if that relates to the rule of the vast kingdom, then what are we doing worrying about all the trivial stuff of life? You know, it really makes me wonder, why do we struggle so much to get Christians to come to church on Sunday? I can't figure out a Christian who has a thousand other things to do, all these things that keep them out of God's service, when the singular purpose that God says for our life is to pursue his kingdom. And I wonder, or I should say I don't wonder why unbelievers don't seek God's kingdom. But I never understand a believer doing that. Believers act as if they're still in the kingdom of darkness. Whenever you serve the dollar, what you're doing is serving yourself. And when you have a thousand other things that can keep you out of uh, the Lord's house on a Sunday, instead of coming to worship him, then you are consuming things upon yourself. You've got self on your mind. You're not seeking God's righteousness. You're not concerned about his kingdom. Now, I would point out that seeking God's kingdom means that you will have an exponential growth of faith. Philippians 3, Paul says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. This one thing I do. That's what Paul said about his life. And that was preoccupation with the kingdom. It meant setting aside all personal desires and knowing that God is going to take care of our lives when we put our focus on him, on the one thing, on the one thing where it belongs What has God called me to do? What has God called me to be? How can I serve God's kingdom and how can I lay up treasure in heaven? And when that becomes your focus, that's when you begin to know God better. And as you know God better, your faith begins to increase. The more your faith grows, then the more that you can divorce yourself from the cares of life. And then then you begin to leave worries behind. And if you want to know what it means, you know, you hear preachers and other people talk about living a victorious Christian life. This is what it means. This this is exactly what that means. If you want to know what the Bible means about joy, this is what it's talking about. We become so focused on God and his calling in our lives that the greatest troubles that cross our path are no more than pebbles that we just kick out of the way. Why? Because God has those things handled. And you need to realize in some places or sometimes God has put those troubles there in your way. And he's done that in order to increase your faith as you overcome them. So unsaved people don't really get this. I mean, I'm talking to 
Christian people today, this doesn't really resonate with those who aren't believers in Christ. They become very perplexed when they see Christians and we face health issues and face death issues unfazed. They don't understand that. We've had people come into our church for memorial services when we have a member of our church pass away and they come in and lost people will come, friends that have of that Christian and they may make comments and they'll talk about how that this person was a person of great faith and they didn't understand really how that person faced death without any fear. How did they do that? The Menonis told me this morning that John Helton, a man that we've been praying for, uh, just passed away. He was a child of God. And I know that there are people who would look at that and say, well, how can his family rejoice in the fact that he's gone home to see the Lord? How can they rejoice in the fact that he died? It's because they know where he is. They know where the faith lies. They know what was most important. Now, the world doesn't understand those things. Then let me add this. If you're jotting down notes today, write this down somewhere. Write down holiness. The holiness of your life takes care of anxiety issues. If you're pure in heart and you're living a clean life and you don't have all the vices and the junk that are in your life that fills up so many Christians, then you will not live in worry. I mean, if you can get rid of those things. You know, there are Christians that can be set off by little things. I mean, there's just little things that come come and, and their lives fall apart. They fall into those potholes and they don't know what to do with themselves. They're holding on to stuff in this life and that prevents their service to God. And some of you are miserable Christians because you have your eyes on something other than the kingdom of God. Somebody had said something that you didn't like, and so that set you off, and so you quit serving God. And why do you do that? It's because pride. It's pride, isn't it? I mean, you're looking at yourself and thinking, I shouldn't be treated that way. Somebody shouldn't talk about me like that. And so you've got your eyes off of Christ. Who do you serve? You serve Christ. And you may have, some of you, some vices in your life, and you occupy your mind with that, and there's junk that's going on. You don't spend any time in the Word, and you don't pray like you should. You have so much guilt in your life that you're ashamed to come and talk to God. And that is a Christian's life who is a ready-made recipe for worry. You can't avoid it. It's going to overtake you because you're acting like you're living in a different kingdom. 2 Corinthians says, separate yourself from that stuff. Come out from among that, it says. Get away from your friends and, that are unbelievers. Get away from your ungodly lifestyle. And then it says, when you do that, God will receive you. Now, I didn't read those scriptures, but if you want to write down the reference, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. And God says this, when you do this, I will receive you. John Gill commented on those verses in 2 Corinthians. And he said, The Lord here promises that he would take care of them under the wings of his protection. He would take care of them and preserve them and keep them as the apple of his eye and be a wall of fire around them whilst in the world. And when he had guided them by his counsel here, he would receive them to glory. Now, you want a cure for worry? That's it. Start living a holy life. I mean, if you live like one who's been called out of darkness and then translated into the kingdom of the dear Son of God. Scripture says he will bring you into everlasting habitations. And when you have that, what do you have to worry about? So let me say it one more time, just 
to be doubly sure you get the point. You know, Christ said this over and over again. Take no thought. Take no thought. Don't worry. Don't worry. So I'll repeat it too. Stop all that stuff. Get all the garbage out of your life. Get rid of your bad associations. Get rid of your bad habits. Get rid of your worldly clothes and your worldly music and your worldly talk. Dump it all. And then do what James said. Draw nigh to God and he will draw, draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. That's what it means to submit to the right kingdom. And when you do, worry issues will melt away. Now, I want you to notice the end result of all the proceeding. Here's what you get with preparation, composition, exhortation, expectation, and submission. You roll all of those things together, and what you get is the fruition of life. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All those things that you were worried about, all that stuff that taxed you, things that made you miserable, all the things that you're trying to get on your own, all the things that you're burdened with, God will give it to you. Cadillacs, house on a golf course, vacation home in Hawaii? No. You don't need all that stuff. And in fact, those things can take your mind further off the kingdom of God. So God's not going to add those things to your life, but you will be fruitful in all that counts. You'll get what you need because God's already promised that. Now, the heathen labors for that. He's seeking for it. He never gets satisfaction. But a child of God who has his eyes focused on God and what God is doing in the world, he'll finally reach a place of stability in his life to where he'll be content with what God gives. You will be fulfilled. And the scripture says, everlasting joy shall be upon your head. Now we notice that through the word of God, that Jesus does not make the same kinds of promises that the prosperity gospel makes. And the reason that he doesn't is because it's not his gospel. The, pri- the prosperity gospel keeps you forever focused on the things of this life. It keeps you always wondering, uh, when am I going to get these things? I mean, if that's what God promises, then when am I going to have them? And I don't know of anything that's more damaging to real spiritual health and prosperity than Christians who believe in a prosperity gospel. You know, it seems paradoxical to say it that way, but the prosperity gospel is anything but prosperity or the gospel. Jesus never taught such a thing. The apostles never lived such a thing. And yet... We've seen in the scriptures that those who have believed the true gospel of Jesus Christ receive joy in their life, even in the midst of persecution and the worst physical things that could happen to them. That's why it said, keep Hebrews chapter 11 that we read in the scripture reading on your mind. When you focus on the eternal, then the temporal becomes as inconsequential to you as it is to God. Now, there's one more verse, verse number 34. It says, take therefore no thought for the morrow... For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So number seven is the confusion of life. Now this is the last one, and I guess this should be the final word for all of you worry warts. You are very confused and mixed up people. And this last verse points out the utter foolishness of the way that you live your life and the way that you've tied yourself up in knots. You know, I love the way that Jesus so concisely gets to the crux of the issue. Uh, Here is really the most damaging part of worry. Now, again, if you're taking down notes today, write this down. These two words, double trouble. 
It is doubly confusing and doubly debilitating. If you are a worry ward, then why in the world would you want to borrow from tomorrow's troubles and pack those into today with the troubles that you're already worried about? I mean, some of you lay awake all night long and you're thinking about things that might happen years off into the future, years before it could ever happen. And Jesus is saying here that there's enough to occupy your mind today. There's enough trouble today. You don't have to start thinking about tomorrow. Tomorrow's problems are not to be worried about. You have enough to worry about right now. Now, if you get into tomorrow, then even more problems that you can't solve are heaped upon the ones that you have today that you can't solve. Worrying doesn't solve any of them. And so you end up in double trouble, triple trouble, quadruple trouble. It just depends on how much multitasking of trouble that you want to get yourself into. So how sick and counterproductive and confusing is that? And if you live that way, you'll never even have one day of peace. And you know why? Because even if today is a day with no worries, you borrowed something from tomorrow that you could worry about today. And so you fill up no worry days with worry. Does it make any sense? And it never ends. Tomorrow, it's the same thing. And so as long as you live, every day is a day of worry because you keep stealing problems from the future. Most of the time, we worry about things that will never happen. And if they do happen, then that's, that's all the proof you need that worrying didn't help anything, did it? So why in the world are you worrying about it? You can't change it. Don't bother with it. All it does is make your life miserable in advance. You know, I'm kind of confused even talking about that whole thing. And if that's the way that you want to live, then I recommend you take two Prozacs and call me in the morning. Now, I love what Adam Clark commented on this verse. Adam Clark was a man who lived back in the early part of the 19th century. And he says, The last reason against this preposterous conduct is that carking care is not only useless in itself, but renders us miserable beforehand. The future falls under the cognizance of God alone. We encroach, therefore, upon his rights when we would fain foresee all that may happen to us and secure ourselves from it by our cares. How much good is omitted? How many evils caused? How many duties neglected? How many innocent persons deserted? How many good works destroyed? How many truths suppressed? And how many acts of injustice authorized by those timorous forecasts of what may happen and those faithless apprehensions concerning the future? Let us do now what God requires of us and trust the consequences to him. The future time which God would have us foresee and provide for is that of judgment and eternity. And it is about this alone that we are careless. How true that is. I mean, while we're worrying about the future that only God knows, we don't have time to deal with what we already know to do. We become consumed with things that we can't touch now and leave go the things that we can touch now. And God says that the only future that he wants us to be concerned about is judgment and eternity. And those are the two things that most people are so careless about. They're totally careless about judgment and eternity. Now, if you want to bring this down then to the only thing that you should be anxious about, be anxious about this. Be anxious about your eternal soul. Be anxious about how God will judge you And if you've been anxious enough about that, you'll finally won't be anxious anymore. And there's another paradox. Uh, If you 
if you think enough about righteousness and judgment, then I promise you that you are going to worry yourself out of worry. You're going to exhaust worry. And you see how Jesus is just masterfully bringing this bringing us through to this point. I mean, he weaves all this teaching together until he shows worry warts what they should worry about, and then they won't be worried anymore. Well, I don't want to end with a point in my sermon that's confusion. So let me take all the confusion out of your life. Let, let Jesus take the confusion out of your life. You are a sinner, and your doubt and your confusion proves it. You are concerned about this world because the world is the only thing that you know. It's all that you understand. One day, Jesus went to the cross to solve the problem of sin. And he did that by providing the payment for sins that would bring us into a right relationship with God. Jesus shed his blood on the cross and he said, Whosoever believes in that sacrifice that he's made for sin will have everlasting life. And so in other words, what Jesus did, he died to satisfy your greatest need. And according to this passage, if you are right with God, which is your greatest need, then all the other needs that you have are a snap as far as God is concerned. And so if you're a worrywart, Jesus takes care of that. He has the cure. And it's better than all the worldly counsel that psychiatrists can give. It's better than all the drugs that you can take. Jesus gives you promises. He gives you a promise of eternal life when you trust him. And so what Jesus does is that he prescribes promises and not Prozac. And friend, if you can't see that everlasting life is far better than this tiny timeline of life that you're living right now, then, and that's the thing that you're worried about. If you can't see the difference between those two things, then stay on Prozac. That's where you need to be. Jesus offers a way out of confusion. And I'm happy to tell you today that he always makes good on his promises. He will perform. All we need to do is trust him. It says, seek his kingdom. And that's because his kingdom is worth seeking. There's the answer to all of your problems. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word to look into. We are an anxious, excited, worried people And as your word says, we need not have any of that in our lives. You've done so much for us. You gave your son to die on the cross for us. Help us, Lord, to understand that the greatest gift has been given and you are not going to withhold any lesser thing from us. Lord, help us to look at that. Help us to pursue your kingdom. May we seek after righteousness. I pray, Lord, you bless every Christian here today that this might be the focus of their lives. And then, Lord, also for those who may be here today and they haven't trusted you as Savior. There is no hope or comfort here. The best that they could ever do to end the cares and anxieties of life is to medicate it. Just get it taken away by drugs or some other means because they're never going to satisfy the hungering of their soul unless they know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to someone today. Uh, Bless our hearts with this message that we've preached and heard, and I ask you, Lord, that it might take effect in our lives today. We ask this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.